Hello, and welcome to the 105 Way Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia. And your co-host, JL. And on this episode, we have Dr. Naima Olatunji. How are you today? I am so amazing. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Thank you. It's a beautiful day. Yes, and it's so great to have you on the show. So welcome. Um, And thank you for taking your time to speak with us today. Um, We would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, what you do for a living, and how the idea of writing came to mind. Oh, gosh. Um, So I am a middle ager. My, I have three kids. My youngest uh, is an 18 year old boy who said to me um, the other night, I had an event to go to and he was like, you're old. Why can't you go home and stay inside <laughs> and like crochet something? I don't understand. I don't understand. And I am recently an empty nester. He just left for college in August. And I got to tell you, I am having literally the best time of my life. While I have been parenting for 27 years and love my three children immensely, I didn't know that it was going to be this good on the other side. And so that makes me want to go outside, despite Kenan's um, disagreement with that. So I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a business owner, uh, entrepreneur, a podcast host myself. I am a chiropractor. I just wrote a book. Um, I feel like this is the best time in my entire life. And so I'm, I'm just excited to wake up every day and see what this day brings, what this, um, what this journey gets to sort of take me. And then just remembering, and I'm sure that you all do the same, like remembering that my life needs to be used for the greatest, highest purpose. So I tried to remind myself, like, be grateful for where you are, but please remember, like, you're, you're being used. So how can, how can God use me through my actions throughout the days? And um, I think that that's been a really good, helpful sort of grounding tip for me. Okay, and then tell us a little bit more about your book. So what made you want to write it? What experiences came about that said, I need to put this in writing? Mm, Such a great question. So my book is called Raised as a Lie, and I am a very brown girl raised by a all-white family, lived in all-white neighborhoods, went to all-white schools, and was told that I also was white. Um, the man on my birth certificate is not my father, and I was not told that until I was nearly 18 when we, my family had moved to this really small town in Arizona, and the town, I think, sort of boasted of their non-diversity, like it was some ribbon that they had won at some county fair. Uh, So none of the kids look like me. And while that had been an ongoing experience throughout my life, this was a very, very small town, very close-minded. 
And I don't think that their exposure to Black people uh, was very extensive. And certainly it wasn't something that they appreciated. And so my senior year high school, two months after we moved, uh, some of the boys threatened to take me out to into the desert. So this is Arizona, super small town. There's nothing but sand and, you know, desert for, you know, literally hundreds of miles around. And the high school kids would go out way far out in the sand dunes and they'd light these big bonfires and go out there on the weekends and drink and do whatever, you know, high school students do. And they cornered me in the cafeteria one day at school and threatened to take me out to their place that they hang out and lynch me. Only I didn't know what lynching meant. Um, and But I knew enough to be afraid. And I went home. I called my older sister who didn't, who no longer lived with us. And I had all these questions. I was, I, I, I don't understand, but I knew enough to be afraid, only she wouldn't answer any of my questions. And I talk about in my book, my relationship with my sister was very adversarial, but at the very least, I thought that she would at least, you know, answer the questions and she wouldn't. And I begged her, I was like, please don't tell mom, please don't tell mom. And um, so then I get called into my mom's room uh, later that afternoon. And I'd known, you know, that she had told my mom. And so my mom had to share this uh, with me because at this point, it no, it, it became about how does she keep her daughter safe physically from harm as opposed to emotionally, how do we protect her against this lie that we have been carrying on? And because I was born in 1970, and this was during a time where, you know, um, it was wholly unacceptable to have this biracial child. And my grandparents um, were extremely racist. And so this was, this was a, a really big sort of pill to swallow for my mom. And so my family, while they loved me tremendously, I think just all walked around, never sharing, never talking about the elephant in the middle of the room. And so when it was revealed to me, I sort of went through this really just, shock and disbelief. And now what do I do? And then I fully embraced being black and just went all the way to the other side. And now I'm super black. I'm at USC and the president of the black student union, like all in. Um, and it wasn't until years later that it really struck me as how unique my story is and how much that worthiness is tied to your identity. And so fast forward when I'm 49, I decide now's the time to tell the story. Most of the, the characters in my story have passed. And so I just now have the freedom to be able to share this story without feeling like I'm betraying my mother. I wasn't raised with my biological father. And so I I just felt like there was something freeing in me telling the story. And, you know, I think that once you get to a point in your life where you feel like now's the time, I'm so comfortable in my skin and I can share this story, if for nothing else, because I believe that 
your worthiness is an inside job. And if I can share my story and I can help those who read the story, man, I think I've done a pretty good deed in the world. Wow. Absolutely. That is the, the one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. And I'm looking forward to reading your book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know you talked a little bit about uh, childhood trauma. So how does childhood trauma affect us overall? How did it affect you as a person? Tell us a little bit more. Such a great question. I would say for years that I would not have equated that. And I just thought, I mean, here's the thing. I think that we all believe that our story, how we are raised is normal. We normalize our experiences because they're ours. It's it's our normal. Um, and I don't think it is until oftentimes that we're an adult and we're making decisions based off of patterns and meanings that we have derived from experiences that we've had as children. And unless we have enough self-awareness to journey through some of that um, ugliness, I don't think that we make those connections, right? That we really do have to have a present sort of mind to look through some of those um, traumas. For me, it was when I was 49, so just a year and a half ago, I am on my knees in the practice that I built, begging a man not to leave me, to stay, to keep his promise to me. And I thought my entire world was going to end if he walked out of the door. And I had been married for 22 years. I was divorced for six. I thought that I was good. I thought that I had gotten through the trauma of my marriage ending, becoming a single parent, navigating through grad school, um, opening a business, all the things, surviving severe financial challenges. And there I was at 49 begging literally on my knees. And I just thought to know me, there's no way that this is the woman that does that. I've survived so much. And I thought, surely this is not what you have become. But the fear was so great that he was going to leave. And what I internalized was that I wasn't worthy. And there was some part of me that looked down in that moment at myself on the floor, drowning in tears and snot. And I asked myself, who told you that you weren't worthy? Who told you that you weren't enough? And I had to, I had to spend some time sitting in that. And then I realized that all of these extremely strong women that had raised me and that had mentored me over the years had sort of taken on this persona of these very strong women. And then in my adulthood, they were strong Black women. And I had put on that cape and that armor as if 
it was my entire identity. And so if you can't live up to the strong black woman, if you can't live up to this stereotype of taking all things on the chin and keeping it moving and pressing and never letting them see you sweat. And then who does that make you? And for me, I realized at some point I cannot do this alone. I went through such a severe depression after that breakup. And I finally admitted, I, I, I can't, nor will I do this alone. And so I went to therapy and through the therapy every single week, it was realizing just a little bit more of this onion that we had to peel back the layers to get to the center, to some, some memories that I had blocked for so long and covered up that I had to recognize like those were then that's at three years old and at four years old and being told that I was dirty and ugly and, and nobody was ever going to love me that that just simply was not true. And now at 49, I get the opportunity to make a new meaning, to create new definitions, to create new identities for myself. So ultimately what I believe is that the childhood traumas, they creep up in very subconscious ways and they then guide some of the decisions that you're making as an adult. But if you're not aware of that, you're letting that inner child run your adult life. And through that journaling process, through therapy is where the book came from. And I am so eternally grateful to my therapist for never letting me off the hook for all the times that I said every single Friday, it's too hard. I don't want to do it. It's too much. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to experience it. I don't want to relive it. It's in the past. And for him gently just sitting quietly enough until I was ready. And then he would say, let's begin again. And that's how you do it. One step at a time one foot in front of the other. That is extremely, extremely powerful. Um, I am blown away uh, just by everything that, that you've said. It's amazing how traumas from when you were three and four years old can continue over into a new element of trauma, right? It doesn't have to be similar. It was It was that moment of you figuring out what was going on with you that young that affected you when you were, as you said, on your knees and begging a man like you really needed him, right? In your mind, you really felt like I cannot live without him, that that moment connected to something years before. That's, it's, it's truly amazing. I'm actually a trauma-informed approaches instructor myself. Um, and so I definitely hear what you're saying. One thing I was thinking about with what you were saying earlier. So I remember being called a nigger for the first time at 18 years old on Wooster Street in Bowling Green, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, tell us more, because I'm curious, the moment that you actually figured out I am Black, Right. Because raised a lie. You're thinking that, well, this is my family. We all look the same. We're good. Can you can you go back to that moment of, whoa, like this has not been the case my whole life? 
My earliest memory, it's such a great question because when, when I really started thinking about it and, and being willing and having the courage to sort of dig in the stuff, um, my earliest memory is when I was four. My mom, uh, my mom used to have this nervous, nervous habit where she would pick the sides of her thumb. She'd pick the skin off of it, sort of just unconscious, right? And I saw her doing it when I was four. And I just noticed, and I was sort of curious about it. Um, but I didn't think that I gave it any conscious thought, but subconsciously I had, and I'd sort of internalized it. And I started picking my, the, the skin on the sides of my thumbs. And I just was completely unaware. And one day I'm in the bathtub and my mom is trying to get me to get out of the bathtub. And I've been in there a really long time. And you know, when you're um, a child and you're in the water for a long time, your hands shrivel up and they become prunes and um, they sort of look like these elongated raisins. And my mom comes in um, to the bathroom and she's toweling, drying me off. And she says, oh my gosh, your hands look like little raisins. And I looked down and I noticed the sides of my thumbs where I had picked, the skin had turned white. And I had this complete sort of out-of-body experience for a four-year-old. And all the things that my sister had sort of berated me with um, about being brown and being dirty and ugly. And I could see the skin on my, my fingers because here was the thing. Every time my sister would tell me those things, while I wanted to refute it, even as a little child, you can, you know, you understand, like nobody had my brown eyes, nobody had my curly hair, and certainly nobody had my brown skin. And so I knew that I was aware, but I just didn't have the language around it. But there was nobody who looked like me. So I didn't have this concept of whiteness versus blackness or, you know, otherness. I just didn't. Right. Um, but when in that moment, when I saw the skin on my fingers and I talk about this in the book that I, I had this desire that if I picked all the skin off of my entire body, I would look like my mother. And if I looked like my mother, my sister couldn't tell me anymore that my family didn't love or didn't want me. And I sort of talked that memory um, away in that experience. Um, fast forward when I'm nearly 18 and my mom is sharing because now she can't keep up the story anymore, the pretenses, she has to tell me. So when she tells me that my father, my biological father is black, immediately that four-year-old memory comes to me. And immediately all the times that my sister has called me dirty and ugly and hearing those boys um, the day before call me a nigger and that they're going to show me what they do to nigger girls. And I started literally physically shaking. Um, and it was just this sort of visceral experience to an emotional trauma. And putting all of those pieces together um, took me, I think, years to unravel and years to make peace with. Wow. This is great. I mean, just 
even talking about childhood trauma because going to, and going back to what you said earlier, going to the therapist is just not okay in the, in the, in the black community, right? Get over it. Be a, be a big boy, be a big girl. You'll be all right. You're just young. It's okay. Right. Um, Telling anybody you're going to the quote unquote shrink is you look crazy. Right. Um, But it is so important. And I, and I love what you said because even us working for ourselves, uh, we were both parole officers in Toledo, Ohio. And the fact that we were able to even have the courage to turn our gun and badge in and take a, take a chance on life, take a chance on ourselves. Um, for me, that started with the therapist because I went on mental health leave and had to go to a therapist. And so when I came back to work, everyone said, oh, he's crazy. He had to go talk to somebody. Don't be around him. But going to that therapist changed my life for the better. So yes, I am I'm very happy you brought that up because it is something that's still in 2022, I believe, to be frowned upon. Not as much as back in the day, but I think even, even still, sometimes you hear people say, be a big boy, be a big girl. And that that should really be removed from our vocabulary. I 100% agree that the stigma that is attached to seeking out mental health support needs to be removed and understood that just like if you were having a heart attack, you would absolutely seek the help of a medical professional if you are having an emotionally challenging time, no matter what that looks like, to seek the counseling, to seek the professional skill set of what your friends most likely do not have is not only the greatest blessing that you can give to yourself, but also to your friends and family, because here's the thing, they're not professionals. They are, they do not possess the skill set that you need and will oftentimes lead you down the well-intentioned but wrong path. And it will not net you the results that you are seeking. And I think that this idea of being so strong that you should be an island is not only detrimental to us individually, but as a community, as a village, as a family. We are so isolated in this country, certainly, but I think that globally, we all sort of, you know, have these ideas and ideologies that are attached to how that we self-govern. But I believe in the end, no matter how you slice the tomato, it's still a tomato. Like it's still the thing, no matter how many pieces that it is in. And so for, for us as humans that are walking around. We are extremely um, connected and people feel our energy and they are um, relying on us. Our family relies and they count on us no matter what your role is in the family, right? You have a responsibility to those around you. And if you do it for nobody else, like let's say that you have too much 
pride, ego, the, you know, fear around it to do it for yourself. I think that the greatest gift that we can give her to others is to heal ourselves, to look in the mirror and say, it's okay to be exactly where I'm at. And let me find the people who can help me to get to where I want to be. The bigger version of myself is waiting. And if you just seek it out, I believe, if this is my truest belief, that the universe is conspiring on your behalf, on all of our behalfs. It is just waiting for us to ask the right questions, not why am I stupid questions, right? Why am I so ugly? Why am I so bad at this? But asking the right questions like, how is it that I can improve? How is it that I can evolve? Who is it that I should seek out to aid me in this goal, this quest, this um, journey. If you ask the right questions, the universe will meet you where you're at. And then you get to begin the journey of healing and let it be said that it is not easy. I am absolutely not saying that it is easy, but what I am saying is that it's worth it. And the most courageous thing that any of us can do is be vulnerable because there's strength and vulnerability. It is not a weakness. It is absolutely a strength to show your vulnerability and to ask for help. I That's something that I learned in therapy when I was going a couple years ago um, was vulnerability. Like that's so important. It's important in relationships. It's important in life. And I come from a family of do everything yourself. Don't ask for help. <laughs> and that's that's the stigma. And, you know, as a black woman, that too, is, yes. you know, we have to do everything ourselves. We have to, you know, figure it out. We'll we'll get through it. And I still I carry that with me. It's a good thing. And it can be a bad thing too. being vulnerable and just asking for help. It's OK to ask for help. And I'm, yeah. I'm still learning that to this day. I think that that is so important. Um, yeah. Going back a little bit to your book, and I know you talked about uh, your family. So when you came out with this book, how, tell us a little bit more of like uh, your sister and your mom. How did they respond to you coming out with this book? Did you forgive them? Um, such a good question. So here's the thing. You all um, are getting the exclusive interview. Um, so the um, the publishing company, the printing company, actually, um, as we speak, my books, <laughs> the physical copies of the books are on their way to me. So the it, so it got published uh, this month. I will have them in my hands um, over the next week. So that's going to be phenomenal. I'm so stinking excited. It has been almost a year exactly to the day that I started the journey, which is incredible. I, um, especially because I would have absolutely told you that I was not a writer ever, ever. I didn't even journal. I literally, I do not own a journal. So, um, okay, fine. I do now, but I did not before. And I, um, I think that had I wanted 
to, which I did not, but had I wanted to take on this very daunting project 10 years ago, I would not, actually 12 years ago, I would not have because my mother was alive. My stepfather who raised me um, from third grade on was um, also alive. And so I would not have done that. Um, My sister and I, are estranged and have been so, gosh, probably the majority of um, her adult life. Uh, She has definitely struggled, I I believe, ultimately with a lot of mental health issues herself, but certainly, um, you know, in and out of rehab and, um, and just struggled, you know, herself throughout her life. I think that ultimately what I can see and what I know uh, from an adult perspective is that she was a little girl who was also struggling. She's seven years my senior and she was having her own tough time. Only I was her target. I was her outlet. Um, I talk a lot about um, the the family life that we grew up in before my mother remarried, and it was extremely abusive and very unhealthy. And she was the oldest. And what I believe is that she bore the brunt of a lot of what I wouldn't have known about when I was three and four years old. Um, And I think that I became her outlet so that that was how she coped. Only she just never self-corrected. She never changed her behavior and never became self-aware enough to seek out her own therapy and um, and really make the changes for herself. And so uh, she just sort of, you know, estranged, um, isolated herself and became estranged to our family. And so those were the bigger players. My grandparents also um, are deceased. And so because the majority of the significant people in my life have passed, it allowed me the freedom to be able to tell my story undaunted, tell my story. Because so here's the thing that I think is also a really important factor. It is, in fact, my story. It is my version of my story, right? It is a memoir for a reason. I do not pretend to tell the story from all the other perspectives of my family members. I cannot say because we never talked about it. I cannot tell you their perspectives of the choices that they made, why specifically that my mother chose to tell this lie my entire life. What I can tell you is what I believe, and that's what I wrote about. What I believed um, were her reasons, and what I think that my family, ultimately, the choices that they made were because they were trying to protect me, and I believe that they were, um, their decisions were based out of love. Um, Becoming a mom myself helped highlight that for me and really reveal that to me. Uh, and now at this stage, I can tell my story and, and, and feel good about it. Now, if they were still alive, what would they say? That's a really, really good question. Um, and I gotta be honest and say, I'm kind of glad I don't have to have those conversations. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you know, it's it's interesting that we're talking about this because just listening to you, I have a question regarding the overall process of writing the story as far as motivating others. I've met two authors now that I can think of that had traumatic stories and because of how traumatic those stories were, that was one of the excuses as to why completing the story was not only difficult, but in their words, it's probably gonna take forever or it's not gonna happen. So two part question, one, for someone going through something similar like that, um, how do you say, push through it, write the story, tell the story, someone can benefit from it. And then two, if it's not trauma related, someone who's just procrastinating or dealing with a, um, a uh, extended case of writer's block, What's your advice to them getting to the finish line? I absolutely love the question. So I will say this, I pay for my discipline, 100%. I have a personal trainer that I pay. Apparently, um, I have another second trainer because I decided that I wanted to take on something hard because apparently that's the type of person I am. So I registered for a triathlon for April of this year. And now I have two trainers and a swimming coach. So I, this is what I know. And I'll speak from my experience. I didn't want to, let me go back. I didn't choose to write a book because I didn't think that I could write a book. I never believed that I possessed the skill set to do it. Now, if I'm completely transparent, probably back to my 20s, I used to write down um, on like lists of goals that I wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author. Only I wasn't a writer. Remember, I didn't even have a journal. So how was I going to become a writer? I have no idea, but I used to write it all the time. And so here it is, fast forward last year. And this is this book is on my heart now. The story is on my heart. I need to figure out. It was a self-exploration process for me. Like I needed to answer that question of why that woman was, you know, down on her knees. And so in doing that process, in, in saying yes to this, I knew it's this huge project in my mind, right? And I didn't know how to, um, to go about, I didn't know how to take the first step, right? Um, you know, the, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Only I didn't know how to take the first step. And again, my belief is the universe conspires on your behalf. So I had a friend who had wrote a book. She had just wrote a book. And so I wanted to interview her on my podcast. And so she comes on and she talks about it. And I'm so in awe of her process. And we have a great interview. And that leads to me emceeing her book launch event. We have an absolute blast. I am just like, this is so dope. And then I have the experience um, three months later, we there's a tragedy that strikes my family and I'm re-reminded about how short life is. Tomorrow is not promised. And so I sort of combine all of these moments to January, 2020, 2020, I am 
laying on the floor of my practice. And I know that I need to tell this story. And so I finally get up with enough courage to call my girlfriend. And so this is what I believe wherever you are and however you start your journey is important for who you invite on your team. Because I believe that team is everything. Those who are around you, how they can support you because it's going to get hard, no matter what it is that you're doing, whatever project you take on, it's going to get hard at some point and you're going to need the supporters. You're going to need your cheerleaders. You're going to need the, um, the disciplinarians who are going to a either crack the whip or give you a hug and kiss it and make it better and push you back out um, onto the path. And so when I called my girlfriend to ask her about her process, she told me about the Creator Institute, which is a program that was designed by a Georgetown University professor who wanted to give his students more than what they were leaving with, which with the end was he felt like nothing. He'd spent this entire semester and he really wanted them to be anchored into some a goal of this big sort of project. And he ended up um, creating an entire syllabus around how do we write a book in a semester? And then he opened it up years later for into the, the public. And so it's like, you know, a portion of Georgetown University students and a portion of people like me who are business owners or you know, entrepreneurs or um, folks out in the real world. And so I got lucky enough that after my girlfriend told me, I sent an email to the professor and he emailed me back in like 30 minutes. And within the next week, we're on a Zoom call. And he was like, the program um, starts um, in a couple of weeks. Put your boots on. Like, we're ready. Like, Let's let's go. And I say yes before I even know what that even looks like. And I'm so glad that I did because he literally structured it like a class. And so each week we'd have writing assignments. And then those writing assignments started out, they started out really small and then they became really big. And you've got an editor that you work with throughout the entire process. And in 20 weeks, what he told me initially was that I would write 25,000 words and I laughed on our call because I thought he was kidding. Um, turns out he was not. And I ended up writing 57,000 words with the help of a cohort because there were over 200 uh, people just like me, whether they were students or otherwise, who were starting out on this journey. And because we were a collective, because we were a community, because we had the help um, of editors, because we had cheerleaders, and then I enlisted some of my own friends um, and family, like keep me accountable. And there were calls so many I cannot count, that I made in absolute sobbing tears. Like, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. It's too hard. I just, because again, mine wasn't some sci-fi fantasy that I was writing about. It was really hard shit. So all of my friends knew they, they played a role, those who supported me. Some kissed it and hugged it and, and just sat and listened. And others knew that their role was to say, I hear you, sweetie. I know. And you're going to have to pick up the pen again.
I know. Open your laptop back up. I'm here. I'll stay on the phone with you. Keep writing. And sometimes we'd be on the phone for hours as I typed and wrote some really hard stuff. And I think that the greatest gift that we can give ourselves is the permission to be human, collect the people around you that you know that will support you and hold you up and pick you back up and push you back out onto your journey and re-remind you of who you are. Because sometimes we forget and sometimes we tell ourselves lies that are not true but you are a finisher. You are amazing. You are incredible. You are unique. You are worthy. And you, my friend, need to go out and tell the story because nobody else can. It's just yours. I love that. I love that so much. Um, you hear me, you hear me inspiring me to write my story. Yes, <laughs> girl, go write. <laughs> um, one thing that I really love about you is that you're just, you're one of those people that I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to take that leap and just do it. Like how you said, when you enrolled in that course, you were like, sign me up. Let's go. Let's do it. I love that. And I think I wish more people had that mindset is to just take the leap because in in today's world and it's so much going on and people are afraid. People are afraid to take the leap to better their life, take the leap to start writing that book. What advice can you give to, you know, like future authors? How can they just take that leap? That is such a great question. So this is, this is what I think, this is what I believe. Um, quick story, when I was younger, my mom used to call me Monday, Wednesday because I'd have this amazing idea on Monday and I was gonna go save the world, save the planet, save the dogs, like whatever I was saving. Like I was gonna go out and I was gonna do it and it was gonna be amazing. And then... On Wednesday, she'd ask me, hey, how's that project going? And I'd be like, oh, mom, that was so Monday ago. So what I learned as a young person <laughs> is that you are responsible for yourself, right? Um, and that if all of your tomorrows were forever promised to you, that you would always look to tomorrow to do the thing. Mm. What I learned as an adult is that I am no different from the most successful people that I look up to. What I know is that they are equally as daunted, equally as scared, equally as unsure. The difference between me and them is they did it anyways. That's it. So world-class athletes do not wake up like, Woo! I get to go out and plunge into 30 degree water. I get to go out and lift 500 pounds and compress my spine. I get to tear muscle fibers. I get to incur shin splints and Achilles tendon issues and tendonitis and shoulder issues and, and 
and, and. None of them wake up and say, I can't wait to feel the pain. They just decide to do it anyways. Entrepreneurs do not wake up and say, I cannot wait to fail. I cannot wait to look stupid. I cannot wait to look like an ignorant person in front of the banker, the investor, my board, my friends and family, my dog. Like nobody says that. What they decide is to do it anyways. Knees knocking, teeth chattering, stomach in knots. They decide anyways. Let's go and we'll figure it out along the way. And once I figured out that they are no different, they're just further along the journey. That's it. They're just further along. They decided and then they went and did it. And I decided and then I didn't do it. And then I decided and then I didn't do it. And then I decided and then judged myself because I didn't do it the, all the times before and what was going to make this time different. And then I didn't do it. And then at some point, I just decided that we're just going to keep deciding. Every single day, I'm just going to keep deciding. I think it's a little bit um, like relationships. Every single day, you decide, you choose your partner every day. And when you stop choosing, hand raised, then your relationship dies. And then you end up where I was, which was in divorce court. And if I trailed it all the way back, if I journeyed back, I can tell you the day that me and my husband at the time stopped deciding on each other, stopped choosing each other. And so I just think now with enough wisdom in my 50 years that, or enough experience that I decided that I'm going to garner the wisdom. I'm going to spend some time reflecting, and then I'm going to use the wisdom that I gained from the experience, not to beat myself up, not to berate myself, not to tell myself of all the things that I have failed, because let me tell you the number of things that I have failed at. But let me congratulate myself that I woke up and I decided that I'm going to do it anyways. I'm scared. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't know. I'm going to find the people who can help anyways. My stomach is in knots. It's okay. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to put the foot in front of the other. And I'm going to know that inside that I am enough to figure out however it is that the journey is supposed to look like and then just go. And I decided two weeks before I opened my practice, my brick and mortar um, wellness practice, that I was scared and I wanted to talk to my mom and I wanted to have a conversation and she wasn't around. And I just needed somebody to tell me that I could and that it was going to be all right. And I was lacking a tremendous amount of faith. And my best girlfriend picked me up. She was like, we're going to the tattoo shop. 
And I was like, we're going to do, no, no. See, we don't, I don't do pain. So I think this is a really bad idea. And I don't have a tattoo. And I think it's a really, really bad idea. But I had found that my mother had written the word faith in her Bible that I had since she passed. And we took that word in her handwriting and we gave it to the tattoo artist. And I decided on that day, almost five years ago, that I would have it tattooed on my wrist. And every time I look down because I am afraid, I'm re-reminded that all I have to employ is the enough faith of a mustard seed for the evidence of things that are not currently seen. But I know somewhere in the ethers, the universe is conspiring on my behalf and I'm going to put one foot in front of the other because if I don't have faith in me, I know for sure I got faith in God. Amen to that. Yes. That that makes me uh, think of um, my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, you don't have to be great to get started, but you have to get started to be great. Les Brown. Yeah. Uh, that is, it's, it's all about getting started. And, and we talk about the universe all the time. Um, and, you know, I actually remember deciding to take the leap uh, based off of my main quote that comes to mind. Steve Harvey is the first person who I um heard say it and we actually have it on our banner when we go to live events uh your real life is in your imagination mm. so you would not it would not come to mind if it was not meant for you mm -hmm. yep. um and I, I love that dr naima you have been I need to get a dictionary to figure out the word. I'll just use this basic word. You are magnificent. Uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Can you please tell our listeners where they can hear more about you, um, about your book? You talked about a podcast. Let them know where they can find you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It is such an honor. I, my heart is so full having this conversation with you all. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity to just come on and connect and chat with you all. So thank you so much. And um, the best two places to find me um, with my website, it's www.raisedasalie.com. And I am an IG person. So Instagram um, at uh, Dr. So Dr. Naima, N A E E M A writes, W R I T E S. So Instagram and website, best two places uh, to connect and, and find um, out what's going on because we've got some really great book launch stuff coming up next month. And I'm so excited. I cannot wait. This book, I'm putting it into existence. This book is going to be really big. I'm so happy for you and congrats. And I, we will be reading your book. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I love that so much. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. This has been the 105 Way Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.